I'm truly blessed to be here with you this morning. I've been looking forward to it. This is a, a, a wonderful place where the welcome is just so warm. And thank you so much. Now, we are looking at a passage in the book of Acts, which you have been going through. So we are in Acts chapter 17, and we will be looking at Acts chapter, I mean, verses 16 through 34. Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. And I think it's a good idea for us to just read it. It's good to read the Word of God together. Uh, so that we can all see that we are not making any of this up. This is what the Word of God actually says. So if you're there, Acts chapter 17, from verse 16, I'm going to start reading. And I'm reading from the NIV, the 1984 edition. Acts 17, from verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As one of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, uh, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Lord, we want to pray that you will speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember when I was in, uh, in, in Bible college in Pennsylvania, I went to share the gospel as Paul was, was doing. To, uh, I tried to share the gospel to, 
to practice and just share the gospel with just anybody that would listen. So I went to this mechanic friend of mine who was um, raised in Uganda but was living in the U.S. He was one of those people who were kicked out of uh, Uganda by Idi Amin, and they were living in the U.S. now. So I shared the gospel with him, and he told me that he didn't believe any of it. He was a Muslim. And then he asked me some questions that I found very difficult to answer. And I was very disappointed in myself for not being able to help him with these questions. So I went to a friend of mine, another friend of mine, who was a missionary in a country that I wouldn't name, just in case someone's listening here and they, they might know who I'm talking about. Um, and I, I, I narrated to him what had happened. And I said to him, how should I have handled this issue? And he said to me, repeat again what you did. So I told him again how the conversation went. And he said to me, you made a serious mistake. What you should have done was to make sure this man never gained control of the conversation. So you should have been brushing his questions aside and just focused on the gospel that you were supposed to be presenting. Never make that mistake again. But that didn't help me at all because at this point, the questions my friend was asking, my Muslim friend was asking, had actually become my questions as well. I needed answers to those questions. So that wasn't very helpful at all. But running the scriptures and seeing how the gospel was presented by people like the Apostle Paul, I have actually come to see that that's actually not the biblical way to present the gospel. That we are actually supposed to listen to people and hear them out, hear what they have to say, and help them with whatever they're struggling with. And if I get to a point where I can't really answer your question, I'm supposed to be honest and tell you I have no idea what the answer is to that question. Let me go work on it, and I can come back, and we'll talk about it. So let's see how Paul handled this kind of a situation. This is one of the most uh, important passages for me, especially for those of us who like to do apologetics. We get a lot of encouragement from this passage in Acts chapter 17, and I'm so glad that somebody thought of uh, inviting me to come and speak on it. So thank you very much. Now we find the Apostle Paul in a city, in a place called Athens. Uh, at this time, Athens did not have the prestige that it once had uh, since the Romans, after the Romans conquered the Greeks. But it was still the intellectual and cultural center of the entire Roman world. This is the place where Socrates and Plato were born. This, is, was, this was Aristotle's adopted city and where he had set up his academy. And so there was a lot of things that were happening here with magnificent buildings and temples and all of that. It was such an important time, place in this day, even though it wasn't the center of, of, uh, of the intellectual world it had been before, it was still extremely important. And so Paul finds himself here, and he is sharing the gospel. Now you have to step back, because I did listen to some of the messages here, and you know that he, had end, he ended up here in Athens, running away from people who are actually trying to take his life. So he's here for safety, and he's waiting for his friends, uh, Silas and Timothy, to come and join him so they can continue with the mission. And so he is here, and he's waiting for them. And I want to ask yourself this question. What would you do if you were Paul in such a magnificent, historic place, and you are waiting for your friends to join you after a beating that he had received. So he's nursing some, some serious wounds on his body. What I would have, if, if he had chosen to find a quiet place and just sit there 
and wait for his friends to arrive and then go to the next place, that would, we would forgive him for that. But that's not what Paul does. What he does is he walks around, as we probably would have done, just to see it because it's such a famous place, to see what's lying around here, there. But he didn't just see the idols that were all over the place uh, and the beautiful things that were over there. His heart was greatly moved. The Bible actually says he was, the, the word used there is, is anger. He was infuriated. He was very, very angry at what he saw happening there because the place was completely full of idols. And so what he did is, in his pain, in his loneliness, he would wake up early in the morning and go to the synagogue or to the marketplace just to try and reason with the people to encourage them and to teach them to to tell them the good news about, this, about uh, the saving power of Jesus Christ in the condition that he was in. He was still doing that. And then some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers um, hear him, and they want to, to engage him in debate. Now, this is the place where you, are, when you are reading, you're doing your Bible reading, you get to this chapter, these passages here, and you kind of uh, skip to the next one where it would maybe make more sense. Because you ask yourself, Epicurean, Stoic, Areopagus, what in the world is going on? How do you even say these words? I'm not even sure I'm saying them correctly. What do all these words mean? But I think to, um, to not take the time to understand what this is talking about is actually to miss the point of what Paul is going to do because he's going to give a speech after this that is probably... There's no other speech in the book of Acts that has been dissected and studied more than what happened here, and we'll be looking at some of the reasons why that's the case. So let's try and understand what these words mean. We begin with the Areopagus. This is the place where these Stoic philosophers and Epicurean philosophers take the Apostle Paul so he can go and talk to the experts about what he is preaching. So the Areopagus literally means the hill of Ares, the hill of Ares, A-R-E-S, and that was the Greek god of war, the Greek god of war. And the Roman name for the, for the god of war was Mars, and so this is sometimes called uh, Mars Hill. It, it means the same thing. So as the god of war, this is the a place where these experts would meet. There was a, a formal and prestigious court that would meet there that was charged with the uh, judging all religious and moral issues among the Athenians. And this is where Socrates was tried and so many other people, and actually many of them condemned to death. So this was a serious issue, serious place to be. It didn't have as much power as it did during the time of Socrates, but, but even, even uh, on this day when Paul, Paul went there, they were still carrying out these activities of, of being the judge there. So for Paul to be taken there, it can be a very risky business because he was actually accused of doing the same thing that Socrates was accused of, which is advocating foreign gods. And so he's brought here. It doesn't seem that they, they took any uh, formal, formal issue. It wasn't a formal case with him because he's able to, to leave at will. So it probably wasn't a, a, a formal issue. They just wanted to hear him out. So that's the Areopagus. What about these other guys, the Stoics and the and the uh, Epicureans. So the Stoics were a group, again, this is a place where they spent time discussing the latest ideas and trying to convince each other of their own views. So there were two rival uh, philosophical movements that were very popular at this time, and one of the Stoics. There were a pantheistic philosophical movement that was founded by a man named Zeno uh, in uh, 
who lived, who died in 265 BC, 265 years before Christ, and he died at the age of 75. And what they taught was that everything in the world, including human beings, has within itself a spark of the divine. So we are all, it was a pantheistic um, movement that taught that God is actually in everything, that everything has a spark of the divine in it. And your mission is in life is to live consistently with nature so you can be able to be properly aligned with, with the world soul, with the oneness of the universe. So this, this were, these were not simple ideas that they were advocating. And so they were defending these views, and they had thought about them seriously over many, many years. So they had honed them down, and they, they thought they understood what life was all about. Stoicism emphasized duty, responsibility, and endurance of pain in order to develop self-sufficiency. If you, were, if you could do that, you would become self-sufficient. If you look up, we still use the word today. If you look up the word uh, stoic, for example, in the Oxford Dictionary, here's what it tells you. It's a noun. Uh, it, it refers to a person who is able to suffer pain or trouble without complaining or showing what they are feeling. So if you are stoic, you are in control of yourself regardless of what may be happening around you. You are self-sufficient. You don't need anything or anybody else because you can handle your own affairs yourself. And many commentators have, not, have uh, pointed out that this poem by William Henley is a great summary of, of uh, the Stoic philosophy. Out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the, the, bludgeonings, the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the ears finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So these are the people that Paul is going to present the gospel to. So that's stoicism for you. And then the next group was the uh, Epicureans. It's a school of thought founded by another philosopher uh, called Epicurus, who died in 270 BC at the age of 70, 270 years before Christ. And what he taught was something different. So you have this person, the Stoics, the, the Stoics teaching that um, everything has God in it. The Epicureans taught a different philosophy. And what they taught was everything is made up of atoms and everything arose by chance. They almost sound like atheists, but they did not deny the, ex the existence of God. What they said was, if the gods do exist, we don't care. They have nothing to do with, with us, human beings, with the world, because everything arose by chance. The gods live their own lives. We live our own lives. So they were basically practically atheists. And your goal in life was to pursue to pursue pleasure as much as you could, but you had to achieve your pleasure by pursuing the tranquility that, that, is, that, that comes out of the, the, the being free of pain. So they were not just looking for, for pleasure because they, they did believe 
uh, that is, was possible to pursue pleasure in such a way that it actually destroys you. So they, they, they advocated balance in your life. So it wasn't, uh, uh, they were not hedonistic in that sense. But you must get rid of, they did that you must get rid of passions that you throw your life out of balance, and you must get rid of fear, especially the fear of death. And if you could live that way, your life was set. You, have, you had found the meaning and the purpose of your life. These are the two rival, rival schools of philosophy that confronted the Apostle Paul in Athens. They were rivals to each other, but they, 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 agreed with, they agreed that Paul's ideas, what he was teaching, was unacceptable. They had a lot of contempt for him. As you see, for example, in verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now the word babbler, what is this babbler trying to say? Uh, it means a second-rate philosopher, a wannabe philosopher who just picks up ideas, one here, another one there, another one there, puts them together, so, and they think they sound really educated. That's basically what the word means. So they were telling him, you do not know what you're talking about, even though you think you do, and you are, you are walking around talking with everybody and trying to convince them you know what you're talking about when you are just a babbler. And so they take him and they bring him to the experts to see what he would be able to, to do before the, the real court with the real experts. What is he going to be able to do there? And so Paul stands up to speak to these experts, and when he does that, he grounds his message squarely on the Scriptures, on the Old Testament. It's an amazing thing to see. And he does that in such a way that the people listening to him have no choice but to hear him out. They have no choice but to hear him out because he demonstrates that he actually understands their own philosophies. He understands their context in such a way that he can address what they're thinking and still be able to defend what he's talking about. So he presents God as not just the creator of the universe, but also the judge of the universe. That's how, that's how he, uh, he, he bookends his message here. And he makes a few points that I now want us to look at. And the first one is this. He teaches them that the world did not arise by chance. It was created by God. The world was created by God. Remember, for these people, God, for, for, the, for some of them, God is so far away. We have nothing to do with, with the world. For others, we are part of God. But he says, no, we were actually created by God. We are not a part of God. We were created by God. There are many, many people in the world today who follow the New Age movement who still hold to these kinds of ideas. There are others who call themselves, themselves atheists today, and they follow these same ideas. But Paul says the world was actually created by God. And in our day, if this was a, a talk on um, arguments for God's existence, we would see how this issue, this, this question of the, the world having been created by God is sustained today, not just by philosophy, but also by science, that we live in a world that has not always existed. And Paul says it was created by God. Number two, he says, God is the only being who is self-sufficient. And that's a blow to people who thought that you could gain self-sufficiency without God. He says, God is the only being who is self-sufficient. Everything else is dependent on God. And then he says, number three, God made us to worship him. 
Reniumba ni kuabudu. God, that's Swahili for you made me, you created me to worship you. God made us to worship him. Paul says that God did this, verse 27, so that they would seek him, so that human beings would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. But you see something amazing happening here and how the how scriptures connect with each other so well because the language Paul uses here he says so perhaps reach out for him he seems to throw in some doubt perhaps reach out and find him and what that refers to is the fact that we are not prone to seeking God or we are actually prone to wonder and he says that very clearly in Romans that in our natural state we are not going to seek God and you see that's why Paul puts that word there perhaps because we don't do that. We instead choose to worship idols as Paul makes clear here and elsewhere. C.S. Lewis said that the phrase man's search for God is one of the, uh, one, one of the if, if there's such a word, he didn't say this, it, that's, that's one of the wrongest things you can be able to say. Because man's search for God isn't really the natural condition of a human being. He said that phrase, man's search for God, is equivalent to the mouse's search for a cat. It doesn't happen. We really do not seek God. We, we instead seek idols. Um, but we were put in this world to worship God, even though God is not far from us, and he does prompt us. When we, when we feel in our hearts the desire to be closer to God or to know God, that's God prompting us to do that. And we had better not quench that, that spark within us from God. Number four, he says that God is sovereign over all nations, over everything. God is sovereign over everything, verse uh, Six, from, from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Well, he's not saying that you should not, that, um, that people, every person has a specific place they should live, and if you are not, uh, African, you shouldn't be here, and if you are not European, you should not be in Europe, and all this. that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is this. God has sovereignty over everything, including the time that you live in this world, and where you live, there's no place that you're going to be able to go that is going to take God by surprise. He's not going to be looking around and asking, wow, where did they go? I thought they were here. God has, is sovereign over everything that we do. And number five, he says, Every human being is accountable to God. You are not the master of your own destiny. You are accountable to God. And then he says this, that God will judge all of us. God will judge everybody. And I like the, in verse 31, the, that phrase he inserts there, just two words, is such an amazing thing to see there. He says, God will judge with justice. You probably worried, for example, ask yourself the question about what about those who didn't hear about God, will they end up in hell, what's going to be happening? You can take comfort in the fact 
that when God passes his judgment at the end, we will all be able to see that he did so with justice. How the details work out, we don't have to know, but we know that he's going to judge the universe. He's going to judge it with justice. And, but what we need to know here, what these people needed to hear, is that they are accountable to God. They are not the master of their own destiny, and neither are you, neither am I. And number six, our hope is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it says, from one man, God made the world. That's obviously referring to Adam. And then through one man, whom he raised from the dead, God would judge the world. That's obviously referring to Jesus. So he grounds his message very clearly on the scriptures. And as you read the passage, you will see that he drives the points home by quoting their, their, their very well-known poets and philosophers. He quotes them, which means he has taken the time to understand what they teach, to, to understand what they believe, so he can be able to speak their language. And this is a, an extremely, extremely important point for us to be able to see. Because uh, you will hear all kinds of ideas thrown around about this passage. Like I said, this is the most discussed section of the book of Acts by, by the people who write commentaries on the book of Acts and, and people who write articles and all of that. They discuss this a lot. For example, let's now go to some quick lessons that we need to pick up, we need to learn from this passage. And the first lesson is this. The method we use to present the gospel makes a difference. The method you choose to use to present the gospel does really make a difference. What you will see everywhere Paul goes, if he's speaking to Jewish people, it says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He would take the Bible, the Old Testament, and reason with them, trying to convince them that the Messiah promised in the Old Testament had actually come in the person of Jesus Christ. You will see over and over again, he reasoned from the Scriptures, reasoned from the Scriptures, reasoned from the Scriptures. But here in Athens, he's talking to people who care nothing about the Old Testament, don't even know the Old Testament exists. So when he's standing before them, what is he going to do? And the Bible says he actually begins where they are, with the altar to unknown God that they have erected. And he says, that which you worship is unknown, and notice the words used, that which you worship, not, um, not, the, not, the, not a person, but to them, it was just a thing that they were worshiping. So he's not telling them, don't worry, guys. You've been worshiping God, even though you didn't know, you didn't know it, so you're okay. That's what he's telling them. What he's telling them is this. You are ignorant of who God really is, so let me tell you who he really is so you can be able to worship him properly. And he begins there and walks with them and takes them to the place where he can be able to speak to them about the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ. Now, um, you will find, remember our point is, the method we use makes a difference. Now, you will find, if you look at, even if you don't read the passage, you see in chapter 18, the next city that Paul goes to is actually the city of Corinth, right? That's where he goes next. You find this argument to, to try and refute the point that I'm making, that the method used to bring the gospel makes a difference, and that Paul was actually presenting the, presenting the gospel properly to these philosophers, you find people who will tell you that, that that's actually wrong, that Paul 
regretted doing what he did before the Athenians. That's a very popular argument today that you find even some of the best commentators will, 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 will make that claim. And here's why they make that claim. If you go to, okay, so, so the next place Paul goes to after Athens is Corinth. And when he's there, when he's writing the Corinthians, he tells them this. In 1 Corinthians 2, from verse 1 to verse 5, he says this to them. And so it was with me, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I have had many people take me aside and read this passage to me to show me that we really need to stop doing apologetics because even Paul learned that that was actually the wrong approach. We just need to present the gospel and that's it. Now, the question becomes, was Paul's message to the Athenians really a failure? Did he fail in what he tried to do? And the answer, I would have to say, is really no. Because like I said, his message in Athens was squarely grounded in the scriptures. So he didn't deviate from the scriptures. He grounded what he was saying in the scriptures. And then he continues in his ministry, he continues to quote pagan philosophers and poets uh, even after this incident. So there's no way he could have given that, that approach up because he continued to do it. For example, in Titus 1 and verse 12. And then in, in the same book, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he gives a powerful defense of the bodily resurrection. Of, of, of the saints. Uh, so he's still using his mind to, uh, to, um, to present the gospel. And then, he, and then this is actually not just Paul. Peter tells us to be prepared to give a defense, to give an answer, to give an, uh, an apologia, uh, which is apologetics, to anyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that we have, but to do so with gentleness and with, uh, with, with respect. And we see Jesus in his ministry doing the same thing. So that argument is, is, is not right, that Paul was not successful at, um, at Athens. Also, to say that he wasn't successful is to actually miss the point. If you can, if you can appear before the court, the court that actually has... This, this much power on the land that's respected by everybody. You appear there, you present the gospel, and one member of that court, and the Bible, the Bible says actually others did too, but one member of that court becomes a believer. That's not failure in any sense of the term. And remember, Paul wasn't there. Uh, he, he didn't plan a mission to Athens to go and present the gospel. He was doing it because he happened to be there, and there happened to be human beings made in the image of God, and he appears before before this, uh, before this council to present the gospel. The context is extremely, extremely important. When you're talking to somebody, my, the advice I got from my friend that I should have brushed aside all these questions was actually wrong because context makes a big difference. You need to hear the person out so you can be able to tell what, what, what the stumbling block is on their way. If you don't do that, you will lose the audience completely. There's a, a man who was, who was preaching through an interpreter to a group of people who were living in an island somewhere. He had spent so much time trying to prepare his message to get ready so that these people can get to hear about Jesus Christ. And as he is preaching, he says to them, he says, Which, Would you, if you are a father, 
if your son asks you for fish, would you give him, give him a snake? So the translator translates that. And the people, all of them say, yes. Because to them, a snake was a delicacy. That's, that's what they ate. If you miss the context, you will lose your audience. And so this man is confused about what, 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 what do I, where do I go next if they won't go along with me in this message. Remember, the message or the content that we present doesn't change. That remains the same. The message or the content we present remains the same. The messenger and his character need to remain the same. The only change that needs to happen is when we are growing in our, in our character, in our knowledge of who God is. So the message or the content doesn't change. The messenger will remain the same. And the, uh, the only change that will take place is in growth in character. But the method varies with the context in which we find ourselves. The method will, will vary with the context in which we find ourselves. This is, what, uh, this is how Blaise Pascal put it. Uh, he says religion, but I'm going to read Christian. He meant Christianity, so I'm going to... When I say Christianity, he, he, he wrote religion. This is what he says. Men or human beings despise Christianity. They hate it and are afraid it may be true. The cure for this is first to show that, that Christianity is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Next, make it attractive. Make good men wish it were true. And then show them that it actually is true. That's the approach that we are supposed to take, and it works beautifully when presented that way. Number two, second lesson. The gospel message is for every human being. The gospel message is for every human being, including thinkers. The mind today is the most neglected mission field. So when you find a person who has a lot of questions, who's asking you all kinds of, raising a lot of objections when you're presenting the gospel, we tend to walk away from such people. But you need to know that that person who is hurting, in, who is asking those questions, is hurting in the same way. If you found somebody who is, for example, suffering greatly with depression, you would, it would be very difficult to walk away from such a person. You want to comfort and help that person as much as, as, you, as you can, which is the right thing to do. But this other person is asking questions if they are actually asking questions, they are also hurting. There are different ways to get lost, to be, to be lost. There are different ways to be lost. Um, for example, in the story of the prodigal son, you have the prodigal son lost out there in the field. But then you have the older brother lost at home. He was lost. There are many different ways to be lost. And for some people, the way to their heart is through their minds. And this happens over and over again. So the gospel message is for every human being, including those who want to argue with you, those who want to ask all kinds of questions. Uh, there was a, I remember reading a survey at some, some years ago that went something like this, that roughly 80% of the people you meet are satisfied with whatever worldview or religion they have adopted. They are very, very happy with it, about 80%. 20% are not, and they are looking for a worldview, for a map, for something they can, they can hang, on, hang on to in life. And that 20% will respond to anybody who shows up, shows up with anything that sounds coherent, even if it's uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Muslims. It doesn't matter who it is. If you, come up, if you show up with something that sounds coherent, those ones will respond. 
What do we do about the 80% who are satisfied with what they believe? There's no way to address that situation without being able to question their core beliefs and show them why they are wrong, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul was doing here. The Bible says this in Acts chapter 9, from verse 15 to verse 16. This is when Paul was called to the ministry. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I read it the way you probably would read it, the way we would all read it, but there is something there that's extremely important that we miss all the time. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. That means the gospel is for everybody, including those, those halls of power. And that's why you find Paul, every, every place you find him, whether it's in Jerusalem, he's speaking to the people that, that, that have the, the most influence um, um, over everyone else. Every place you, and at the end of his, uh, the, the book of Acts, Paul actually, he doesn't have to, but he appeals. He could be set free, but he appeals to Caesar. And then he writes that as saying that those in Caesar's household have actually heard the gospel. The gospel is for everybody. God meant it that way, that we should be able to be witnesses even to those who run our country. We need to be able to be witnesses of the gospel to those who run our country. Instead, what we have to do is to obviously be the way Paul was, not worship them, but represent Christ before such people. This is what John Stott writes. There is a need for gifted evangelists who make friends and gossip the gospel in such informal settings as this. As for the Areopagus, it has no precise equivalent in the contemporary world. Perhaps the nearest is the university, where many of the country's intelligentsia are to be found. Neither church evangelism or street evangelism would be appropriate for them. Instead, we should develop home evangelism in which there is free discussion. Christ calls human beings to humble, but not to stifle their intellect. Christ calls human beings to humble, but not to stifle their intellect. In this passage, we are being presented with another way to get people to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And this actually does take a lot of work because it includes being able to hear people out and not to brush their questions aside, being able to hear them out so we can be able to guide them, to walk with them to the point where they begin to see who Jesus really is and how much he loves them. That's our call. That's our calling. The gospel is for everybody. Number three, God did not intend for us to ignore the life of the mind. I've already alluded to this. God did not intend for us to ignore the life of the mind. The Bible is clear that we are to love God with the entirety of our beings, including our minds. And we see this happening over and over again in other places in the gospel, uh, in, in, in the New Testament, in the, and the Old Testament as well, and right here as Paul is presenting the gospel here. I want to read a quote here from uh, J. Gresham Martin, which was um, in an essay called Christianity and Culture. This was, this, was, this was published in the Princeton Theological Review in 1913. So it's a long, long time ago, and we would do well to listen to these, these words from uh, J. Gresham Martin. He says this, False ideas are the greatest obstacles to the reception of the gospel. 
We may preach with all the fervor of a reformer and yet succeed only in winning a struggle here and there if we permit the whole collective thought of the nation or of the world to be controlled by ideas which, by the resistless force of logic, prevent Christianity from being regarded as anything more than a harmless delusion. Those are wise, wise words which many, many times, unfortunately, we do tend to ignore. Number four, we are almost done. Number four, the gospel message is for all time, in season and out of season. The gospel message is for all time. Remember what we, where we started. The apostle Paul is in Athens. He's running away for his life. He's, uh, they've taken him here. He's waiting for his friends to come. And he is suffering because he's been flogged. And when they flog people those days, sometimes they did it, uh, expecting the person not to survive uh, the flogging. So he's in pain. He's all alone. He's in Athens. But what does he do? And in verse 16, uh, it says, while he was waiting for them in Athens. So he's waiting. He has an excuse not to do anything because he's waiting for them in Athens. And then, and then it says, he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and, uh, and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. So he didn't have appointments. So he was invited by the mayor of the city to come and address this large crowd. He was talking to people who happened to be there. And the people who happened to be there are the people that you see in your circles of influence, the people who happen to be there. We are supposed to be presenting the gospel to such people so they can be able to know who God really is. This is not meant to make you feel guilty. It's not meant to make you feel like you should quit your job and become an apologist or a Bible scholar or anything like that. That's not the point. The point is we are supposed to be working together as a body of Jesus Christ. And, and in, in the church, in this context, you're supposed to be encouraging one another to become uh, the, the, the full, fully functional body of Christ. In many of our churches, we call specific people the minister. Because that's the minister in the church. That's actually wrong. We are all ministers. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, if you start reading from verse 11, that God gave people certain gifts in the church to equip everybody, all the saints in the church, so that the saints can be able to do the work of the ministry. So we're supposed to be equipped to become who God meant for us to be. So this is, again, this again is an amazing section of scripture. And my hope and prayer is that as a church, as we continue to see what was, was, unfo what was unfolding in the book of Acts, we'll begin to become who God meant, us, meant for us to be in the house of God, as the family of God. Thank you so much, and God bless you.